cliffcentral.com It's um this is one of those songs. It's 20 years old I just found out, right? R Kelly and Notorious BIG. It's been playing a lot um recently because everybody was just remembering Biggie Smalls. Uh, but I thought it's definitely the song that I'm going to start today's show with because it's such a cool song, right? It's such a cool song. It's a happy song. It's a sexy song. It's got R. Kelly. It's got amazing, notorious B.I.G. rhymes. But what? Right? It's a song about what? And it's a song for me that is so revealing about the nature of the world that we live in. 20 years ago already, this song celebrates a rape culture that we live with every day. So this guy, you know, you're used to me spending, I'm not going to be like buying you drinks and wine and shit this this very night. And I thought, mm, you know, I was... I'm going to say it. I was 17 years old back then. I couldn't couldn't quite understand what it was all about, but it was such a cool song. Mm-hmm. And what songs like this do is they make things that are actually unacceptable become acceptable. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine on Facebook posted, put a post up that, that made me feel ill. It made me feel uncomfortable. It made me feel sad. It made me feel a little, 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 little broken. He put a post up about a hot woman that he was chatting with who he found out had been raped four times. And It made me sad because I thought, oh, my God, what a terrible thing to happen to this wonderful girl. It made me feel broken because I thought, so he doesn't equate a hot woman with being violated. But I loved the fact that he ended his post by saying, what's wrong with us? And then this morning I get here and frankly speaking, have stolen my topic. So I thought. Actually, frankly speaking, you haven't stolen the topic. This is a very important topic. This is definitely something to talk about. I'm Pumima Sheho and you're listening to Womandla. And today we're talking about the power that you need to take back your life when you have been violated. I've got an incredible guest and she'll introduce herself just now. But before I let her go from our last show, frankly speaking, Mara, The guys didn't give you a chance to talk about what Tears Foundation does, so you get the chance. This is your ad break. Woohoo! For all the women out there, hello. It's so lovely to be in this enthusiastic studio today with the guys and the girls. And I'm very pleased to say that your guest that's coming is a fantastic woman. And she is one of the reasons that I do what I do. And she's going to share her story. I won't steal her thunder. But over the years, we became good friends Mm. because we both have the same heart, and that is to help other women. Amazing. So Tears Foundation, tell us a little bit about Tears Foundation, what you do, how to get hold of you and where you are and why you do what you do. I started Tears Foundation because I'm a survivor and I know the loneliness that survivors feel because you blame yourself. You look at the world around you and say, how could other people not have seen what happened to me? 
how come no one really cares? Because actually sometimes you just need a home-cooked meal and a hug. You don't need all the clever counseling and whatever stuff. So I'm not saying you don't need counseling, but I'm saying is you need emotional love that's genuine. So what I did, I started a foundation when I went to the police station to report my crime, which is an experience that your guests has had as well, I know. Um, they don't help you as you should be helped. So I decided that the best thing was was to create a database of all the rape and abuse facilities in South Africa on a mobile service that Anybody can access from any phone for free. Tears like the tears. Oh my goodness, I forgot to turn off my phone. Um, tears like the tears a woman cries, but also tears. I see a thing. I often, often, often see a thing that does the rounds on social media about the power of a woman is in her tear, about like God creating women and this thing and this leaking thing on her face. I love that. So tears, T-E-A, T-E-A-R-S foundation. And you're on Facebook and you're on Twitter and you are also online on your website and people can get hold of you. You're based in Santon. Yes, we are. And we are ready to help you. You can share your story with us or you can call our number. And on that number, you will get the three nearest places that you can go to for help. Do you know the number of by yes, heart, Mara? star 134, star 7355 hash. Star 134, star 7355 hash. And that's where you get. It's a free SMS helpline. You send that number. Wherever you are and you get, you will Three get Three places help. where you can fo- phone f- nearby you. So if you're in Impangeni, it will give you help in Impangeni. It's geo-located. Uh, Mara, thank you so much. You are amazing. You're amazing. She said to me this morning, so she arrived and she said, yeah, I'm like minding my own business, trying so hard to look like busy. And she, and when she told me what she does, I said, my God, what a coincidence. And she said, there's no such thing as coincidences. Mm-hmm. So we've decided it's serendipity. There's something in the air. This conversation needs to be had. Lulu. Hi. Th- Whoa. <laughs> That's not the voice you said hi to me on well, outside. I just cleared my throat and I didn't know what it would sound like. And that's the deepest space I could go. Oh my goodness. I kind of shocked myself there for a second. You shocked now. yourself. Welcome. Thanks for that coffee. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, well, thank you for being brave enough to share your story. Thank you. Thank you for thinking that it's important enough to share. I feel like statistically this thing happens to so many people that I don't actually have a single friend who hasn't encountered it in one way or another. Um, so I, I really appreciate the fact that you think that my story is powerful enough to share and to make a difference. So what happened? Um, well, uh, just to correct the number, it's not four, it's actually five. Um I, I was listening to Mara's interview earlier on and, and her interview, her interviewee was giving the, um, the statistic around how we're so much more likely to be raped again once we've been raped the first time. My story started when I was four, um, family friend, and it was, I guess, then termed sexual assault or molestation. But my family's response was, to hide and to cover and there was a huge layer of shame because in black families we generally don't talk about sex we don't talk about any sort of thing relating to rape it's something that we kind of hush up and keep within our families and that was my family's response to it and what that does is it builds a huge amount of shame around the victim or the survivor rather um and that happened to me from a very very young age i remember being you know behind the couch as my family 
spoke about it and I wasn't allowed to be in the room, but I'd, I'd snuck in and I'd sit there and they spoke about things like why I hadn't mentioned what had happened sooner. So already the culture of blame is not with your actual attacker. It begins with the victim, why you didn't speak earlier. Regardless of the fact that you're a four-year-old little girl, you're made to feel guilty. You don't even it. have the words. I mean, I'm a grown-ass woman, and I find it difficult to talk about sex. Right? And I can imagine when you're four, you don't even have the words to talk about what happened. You don't. And on top of the fact that as parents, what we often do is we take away the words for the actual body parts that would be affected um, in, in a sexual assault. So we don't use real words like vagina and penis. And when we do, there's such a huge amount of either amusement or shame or embarrassment in using the words that how do we expect children to even describe where they, they've been touched and where they've been affected. So I didn't actually say anything, but my aunt was bathing me one day and she noticed a huge amount of bru- bruising and, and scarring. And she eventually approached my grand, she approached the family friend. And all that was really done was that he was asked never to come back again. So growing up, I would have to walk past him, you know, going to the spa and, and, and it was very, very hush hush. And, you know, that was one phase of my life. Um, and so it was kind of forgotten about and it was shelved later on in my life. Um, when I'd started to date boys in high school. At my matric dance after party, um, I ran into an ex-boyfriend and we, we, you know, kind of had that moment across the dance floor again where you want to be with each other again. And this is, this is one of the incidents and types of rape that we don't really qualify as rape at all because you kind of wanted to be with this person and you start an interaction, you'll kiss and you'll make out and you'll do all those things, but you still have the right to say no at some point. And so it doesn't matter that I was in the bathroom with him. It mattered that I said no. You know, at some points. And, and he said something that I've come to hear from every single other man that's raped me every, ever since. Just let me finish. And, and so that was the second one. And I remember going home and there was so much blood and there was so much pain. And I knew going back home that I couldn't have this conversation with my grand because if she hadn't, hadn't handled it when I was four, there was no chance of her handling it when I, in a lot of ways, felt culpable in, in this process. Um, the next time again was after I was married, my ex-husband would periodically rape me and rape within marriage is not something that we discuss either. In fact, it's one of the most taboo kinds of rape to speak about because in a lot of ways, and especially within black communities, you're owned once that lobola is paid. And in my case, there was no lobola paid, but, but I was still his property long after we separated and long after we got divorced. And I was one of the first women in the country to have a lifetime protection order. <clears throat> but walking into the police station, Mara spoke about it a little earlier on, it's really, 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 really disappointing to see that the initial reaction is, but it's your husband, so he can't. You should go home. You should call your parents. You should sit down. You should do all of the things that that kind of send women back into the hands of their rapists or their abusers and send them back within themselves completely broken and shattered because your feeling of aloneness has begun with the guilt that you feel yourself and, and that's around you in terms of the community, but it's extended when the people who are supposed to, the people who are employed to be there for you, have the same mentality around rape culture. Um, and then um, my fourth was, <laughs> can't believe we're going through a list this, this long, was another date rape, but you know, it was a case of 
going to a house party and falling asleep in a bed in a room that was allocated to me and waking up to sex and saying no and crying and that not being enough. It's not enough because you were there. Um, and, and it was interesting to see how even my close girlfriends who were at the same house party didn't consider that rape until many, many years later when they'd had similar experiences. So it's not just the men that are perpetuating the rape culture. It's every single female who asks, but what were you wearing and where were you and why did you fall asleep there? Um, and then my last one, interestingly enough, was two weeks before a public service announcement that I was doing with Tears and the SABC and Avon and, and Mara. At this particular point in time, we'd already started to work together. And, and you know, you've developed such a huge layer of confidence around telling your stories because so many things have happened and you've developed so many coping mechanisms and survival tools that you kind of get to a point where you're not expecting it to happen again. So last year... In April, I went for a run. I'm an avid runner. And um, the supervisor for the security company that was the armed response for the complex that I lived in drove past and told me that the area that I was running past was too unsafe for me to be running in. Um, he said that he was going past my, my complex to check in in any case, and it was a good 300 meters away from where I was in any case, and he offered me a lift home. I climbed into the car. And he locked the doors, and for an hour and a half, I was kidnapped at gunpoint and sexually assaulted in broad daylight. Um, he drove past my house, and I saw my son running through the garden. And there was a moment where I, I knew that there was a very good chance that that was the last time I'd see my child. Mm-hmm. It's been a year. It's close on a year. And I'm still, I'm still waiting um, I'm still waiting for the state to make an arrest, regardless of the fact that I've actually handed them his address. Um, I've given his name, his surname, his company. The company kind of fired him straight away and absolved themselves of all responsibility, and I don't expect them to take any, but I'm kind of done being raped. Not just by the men but by the system. I'm nothing more than a bunch of case numbers and a statistic. And what makes me so upset is there's nothing we can do about it until we start to think differently, until we as parents stop raising rapists. Because if you look at the stats, it's not just the men in the masks. It's not the man that's hiding under your bed. It's not the man with the gun. These are our sons and our brothers and our fathers and our uncles. These are our dads. And it's enough now. You have had over 20 years of the experience of being violated. Mm-hmm. And when you walk into a room, the person that walks into a, into the room is bright, confident, smiling, into the eye, unbroken. How did you do that? 
well, I, I've had enough practice. <laughs> That's one thing. But I lost my parents when I was really young. Um, I got married when I was really young and I had a child when I was really young as well. And the option of falling apart was removed when you're a single mom with an ex-husband who's, who's tried to find you for the past six years. You do not have the option of not surviving. And so I was kind of forced into survival. But for the most part, I think every single survivor has some sort of coping mechanism. A lot of ladies, you know, we hit the bottle. You go through different stages. I went through a slutty phase. I went through... A- <laughs> what does that even mean? No, I listen. went through a slutty phase. And I use the word specifically. Um, you know, I'm heavily involved in the slut walk as well. I've recently become a director. And we, we own the word slut because it's what society uses. And the moment we start using it, we take away its power. Mm-hmm. If you've slept with... If you've got a number of men that you're not afraid to list in this country um, that you've slept with, you fall into the slut category. If you're not afraid to talk about sex, you fall into the slut category. If you're not afraid to talk about the fact that you derive pleasure from sex, then you fall into the slut category. So, um, so, so, which one of the the slutty phase were you? Um, I was the local bicycle <laughs> slutty phase. I went through a stage where it was really important for me to take back my own body and have control of my own sexual experiences. It was important for me to develop the ability to climax because you feel robbed of your entire sexuality after you've had a rape experience. You feel guilty wanting to be touched. And often what we do is we... We go ham, for, for lack of a better expression. We do, we go ham. Um, you discover sexual power. And, and often there's this feeling of maybe if I'm in control of this process and I'm the aggressor around sexual experiences, nobody can take it away from me anymore. So I went through that phase. I went through the phase where a couple of glasses of wine to a bottle a night was incredibly normal because then I could sleep. Um, I went through the phase where I told every second person that I met that I was a survivor because I needed to get numb around having the conversation. You know, I, earlier on, I nearly burst into tears, which is really, really rare for me when I talk about the story because I tell it so often. So you go through all of these phases until you find a coping mechanism. Mara earlier on was saying to me, she needs to fatten me up again because I lose loads of weight. When I get stressed, often what I do is I train for marathons. And so I find different outlets. I've only started to get to a point in my life now where my outlets are a little healthier. So I do a lot of running for charity. I spend a lot of time now practicing creative processes. So I write my story a lot more often. You find there's such a huge sense of catharticism around actually writing it down and leaving it on a piece of paper. I'm currently working on a play around the five stories and you find your own individual way of coping therapy helps a lot for a lot of women but for some women it doesn't work at all and so what we all really need is a massive support system you know organizations like tears and the slut walk but friends and family who are not afraid to talk about the experience in a way that's not condescending um you know in, in with my last experience i found that i was surrounded by a lot of people who were extremely religious and Sometimes that's a really good thing, but sometimes it's even worse because there's so much rape culture that's built into a lot of religions that often I was being told that I was carrying around this pain body that was resulting in me. I was attracting the rape. I wasn't praying hard enough. I wasn't doing the right things. You know, I still 
drank and clubbed. So that's kind of why I was being raped over and over and over again. And you've got to find it what it is that works for you. If it's religion, sure, go for it. But what it boils down to is being able to sit there and go, I didn't deserve it no matter what. Um, and it is a part of my story, but it isn't who I am. And you've got to find ways to piece together who you are one piece at a time. It's small things like being able to put makeup again, makeup on again. Mara and I have that one in common where we, we struggle to look at ourselves in the mirror. I know. She was time. telling me about the makeup story, Mara. It is so difficult. Okay. I was going to like let you be, right? but you have, you have to tell that makeup story. You have to tell the makeup story. So you, um, had survived this most heinous of experiences and had an, and in fact, a couple, a couple of terrible experiences and were giving up. Had tried to kill yourself and survived that because you have a bigger job and were leaving the country. And you saw yourself, you were walking through the mall and you saw your reflection and you hated your reflection. And then you walked into the makeup store and then this is where you take up the story. Well, I, I sat down in the chair and um, felt particularly ugly and terrible. And in my heart, the tears were running down my face because I knew I was that ugly. No one would ever love me again. Mm. And I didn't love myself. So I paid for the young lady to give me a lecture on or a lesson on how to apply the makeup, which uh, part of which was that she had a, a schematic uh, picture of a face. And as the certain items were applied, whether it was eyeshadow or mascara or whatever, uh, she filled it in on the drawing and I did it on one side of my face as she did it on the other. But as no sooner did she apply the makeup that and it came off because I cried so much. And she was very young and completely ununderstanding. And I hadn't shared uh, my story with her. But So she just has this white woman sitting in her chair crying. She's <laughs> trying, trying, trying to teach you how to put on makeup. And all that's happening to you is... I'm weeping <laughs> and saying I'm so ugly. And she's trying to say, you, 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 you're not ugly, you're fine. And as I put the makeup on, yes, it is funny. I agree with you because it brought me healing. So I had my paint by numbers uh, as a sketch. <laughs> and I actually then, it's, as taking that simple step... Uh, uh, as Lulu said, of of learning to apply makeup again and taking back your self-worth is a step that you have to take. Recovery isn't easy. Your everything you believe in. I, I was couldn't even drive. I'd lost the ability mm. to drive. I was so traumatized. Everything I knew as normal. So the makeup was for me to touch base with being normal again, to put mascara on, to to shape your lips and smile at yourself in the mirror. And from that day on, I, my life started to change. I took back control of my life. Because as Lulu said, we've discussed this. It's an experience many people have. It's a life-changing experience. But the reality is you are so far rock bottom that you actually believe that nobody will ever be able to love you again because you are so ugly you can't even love yourself. 
Now, today as I sit here with Lulu, who's a friend, by coincidence we had today, but I would call us friends, and uh, we know one another well. We know one another's hearts and one another's trauma. As she said, we've been part of television productions and various things. We speak out regularly against rape and abuse on the same platforms. And I sit with this beautiful woman who is so competent. She's Speaks so well and conveys her story. I'm so my heart wants to burst with pride at how much she's taken her life back. That it's hard for me to imagine that she would have felt so bad. And in imagining it, together we can imagine how other people listening to this program feel. And we are saying to you together, you can get better. There is hope after rape and abuse. There is a new life, and you will find yourself again. And and the you know, you have a son. Yes. That you raise. How old is your son? He's eight now. Oh God. Yeah. And he knows everything about the world. Yeah. He does. <laughs> he genuinely does. It, at least in his mind. In his mind. And he's at that age where he's kind of getting, you know, a little social life going on and he's a little too cool for school in a lot of ways. <laughs> and you remain Part of a society that, as you've experienced over and over again, is unwilling mm. to to embrace this ugly reality mm-hmm. and work towards changing it. So what do you teach your son about the world mm. he's living in? Well, um, my son and I are incredibly close and I am a firm believer in having as many honest conversations with him as possible. Um, and it's, it's not a matter of destroying his childhood and showing him all the ugly, but we live in, we live in Maboning in, in Johannesburg and there's no better way to experience the prevalence of rape culture than to take a walk down the streets of a CBD and to have men. It doesn't matter whether you are holding your son's hand on the way to the skate park. Men say things like to slice. And I don't even want to know what that means. <laughs> it's 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 a derogatory term for skinny girls because you're the size of two slices of bread. Yeah. And and to have men touch you, just it, it it happens all the time. Just walking down the road, men feel comfortable touching, and that's the best, I guess, case study to unpack with a young boy. Because what I do now is I turn around and I go no. You have no right. And I school them in front of him. And it's gotten to the point where he understands why it's disrespectful to speak to women that way. Why no man should be complimenting a woman below the neck unless he is familiar with her below the neck. Um, he understands the reason things like formal etiquette when it comes to dating is applicable even in this modern day and age because that whole process was a process of asking for permission and waiting to be granted. And we've, in terms of the moral fiber of society, we've eroded all of those things. We don't wait. Instant gratification is the driving force behind so many of the sexual impulses that are being built into modern day society. So yes, I am that mom that doesn't let him watch a lot of things on TV But I am also that mom who sits down and explains that mommy did get kidnapped. And it's never okay. 
it's never okay to do that. You've got to be able to have that conversation. You've got to be able to say nobody can touch your penis. Um, you've got to be able to say you can never touch anybody's vagina unless they say yes. And it doesn't matter that he's eight years old because right now the average young black male in South Africa is experiencing his first voluntary, and I say that in inverted commas, sexual experience at the age of 11. So we can't be waiting until life orientation to talk to our kids about sex. And you don't have to explain it to them graphically, but you do have to tell them what is never okay and in a much more direct manner than ever before. It's not just girls that it's happening to. So the culture around what is appropriate in terms of sexual health needs to be discussed now. We can't wait until we're sitting trying to fill out a J59 at the hospital anymore because that's where it ends up. You have to tell tell us what a J59 is. Well, I even know the forms of health. <laughs> so when you go to the police station, boys and girls, and, and by the way, just before I do that, I'll tell you this right now. It's... Every woman's responsibility to have the number star 134 star 7355 hash saved on their phone because there's a bloody good chance you're going to need to use it. And it's way more likely to help you than phoning 10111. So that's the number you memorize. 10111 can hang for a minute because they don't even, they do not respond. And I'll say that every single time. Um, but just, just, I think it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important that we know that when you walk into a police station, you should not have showered or bathed or any of the rest of it. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to attempt to pass the case on to somebody else. So you've got to stand your ground. You've got to go with a support system. You've got to be prepared to sit for hours in that charge office while they prioritize affidavits over your broken vagina. Okay, you've got to be prepared to have a second change of clothes because chances are you will have to hand the clothes that you are wearing in and they don't have any contingency for that. Then you have to go through to a public hospital or a private hospital and fill out a J59 form, which is a form that the doctors use to fill out and show where the specific physical incidences of bruising, bleeding, cuts and I guess fluids um, were found and it's really important that those things happen straight away, but most police stations will try and get you to delay it until the next day. And they do this because they have massive caseloads and they're very desensitized from the process. Um, so you've almost got to be logically prepared, not only for rape, but for the fact that when you are raped, you've got to be your own lawyer. You've got to be your own counselor. You've got to have your own strength to get through opening a case. Desensitized, I, I think, is a, is a very poignant word to use because the caseloads are so many and that just talks to the amount, the volume mm. of abuse that happens to different people. Um, <clears throat> sorry. And the thing for me around support systems 
and being and and it's it's so strange that you're saying you have to be logical and you have to be prepared, which is not the natural response mm. of a person that's been through trauma. Yeah, you know the natural response when you've been through trauma is a shutdown. Is a, mm. you can't think, you can't you you can't think, you can't act, you can't do, and you're just saying you gotta stay calm. You actually have to. The only reason, and I'm convinced of this, the only reason I survived my last rape is because I got to the point where I could talk down my rapist. I got to the point where. Really? He had stalked me since the previous October and waited until this particular incident. And he was telling me that this was a matter of attraction, that he had wanted to be with me and I would never give him attention. And so today was the day that we were going to have sex. And I had to get to a point where I had to get him to see me as a human being who would potentially have given him a chance if he approached this in a different manner. How did you do that? Sorry, I do have to say what Lulu's leaving out is that she was at gunpoint. She, I, how did you do that? Because I saw my son running in that garden and I knew that he would at some point be sitting outside as the sun went down and as it got dark, wondering where the hell mom was. Can you remember what you said? Um... So what him, happened? Okay, so, so so you got in the car yeah. and he drove off. Yes. This show is not long enough, but this tangent I am totally taking. No. So you got in the car and he drove off. Drove off. Had his gun out. On his lap. And locked the doors. So you can't mm-hmm. open the door and jump out. Mm-hmm. Right. And then what happened? Okay, so he drove as if he was going past my complex and then didn't stop. And he was driving very, very slowly. It kind of looked like every other armed response that drives, like cruises through a little suburb. And I mean, we lived in Ormonde, really nice, quiet streets. Um, and he cruised for a while and I kind of went, you've driven past. And he goes, I oh, know, I just want to talk. I just want to talk. And I went, yeah, but I'm, I'm running late. I have to get to a gig a little later on, so I can't talk now. Um, and he was like, yeah, no, 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 I just wanted to speak to you. And he said to me, you know, I've liked you for a really long time. And my, ent- like the, I, the blood drained from my body because I kind of went, okay. It's happening. This is happening. The gun on the lap is not just a control measure for his patrol right now. This is actually happening. Um, he cruised through as if he was doing a normal patrol and unbuttoned his pants and, and pulled his penis out of his pants and tried to make me touch it, try to make me look at it, try to, and, and his big thing, and I have to say this, this is interesting, and this is, this is what everybody finds the most fascinating, which for me is disgusting, is the fact that he is a white male. Um, and, and so he would say things like, cause I started crying at some point, he would say things like, you can scream if you want, but it's just going to look like I've picked up a criminal. And even if you break the window, I'm going to shoot you in the back and and make it look like I just chased a criminal down the road. So straight away, I looked at him and I kind of knew that he had a plan. He had a plan. He He knew where he was driving me. He was so calm and he had a smile on his face. I kind of felt like you've probably done this before. And if you have a plan, I need to have a plan. Because if I don't, we're going to land up under a bridge at some point. And then? Um, so the actual assault happened. 
he had, so he drove off and then he s- drove with me. He parked. He parked at some point in a park in the Umonde area, um, and forced himself down my pants back and front. Um, he would say things like, "If I just looked at his penis, I'd be fine with it," because he was just as big as a black guy. It was such a sick conversation, and I kind of realized here was a lot different to. I don't know how to term it better than this. Some of the previous rapes, you could tell were a direct result of rape culture conditioning, where men didn't think it was rape. They just felt like it was okay. This was a man who knew it was rape. He, This was so premeditated. He knew it was wrong. He had planned so much around the the contingencies and my possible reactions that I had to do something slightly different. And panicking wasn't helping. The crying wasn't helping. And he smiled more the, the more I cried. So... Um, I kind of went back and, and I thought about it and I kind of went, if he actually likes me, maybe I can appeal to that. If that's what this is about, maybe I can appeal to him on that level. I said to him, but why would you have to do this this way? Cause you're not a bad looking guy. And maybe if you had just asked me nicely, I would have said yes. And he kind of stopped. He said, would you? And I was like, shit. Okay. This is an opening. And it's kind of like when you put your foot through a crack of a door and then you wedge it in and you open that. That's exactly what it was from there on where I kind of went, okay, so do you really want it this way? Is this really how you'd want it from me? Because if I went on a date with you, then I could actually participate. Then I could give you something back. Then I'd actually enjoy doing stuff with you. And then you'd have it whenever you wanted it. As opposed to this where it's going to be a once off and I'm never going to see you again. and I'm going to hate you forever. And he kind of went, so you're going to, you promise that we'll do this. We'll do this properly. Will you sleep over? And he started talking about it. And I was like, well, um, I kind of have a boyfriend. So, and I started making all of this stuff up that were objections around me sleeping with him, but kind of still gave him hope. And when that started turning him off, I started asking him questions about himself because I wanted to draw him back into that human, we like each other conversation. He, he kind of unfolded that he had a wife. And a four-year-old daughter, and we spoke about that for a while. And I said to him, why don't we drive me back home and we talk about just stuff? And then we can meet for breakfast tomorrow. And when are you off? And maybe we can spend time together and da-da-da-da-da. And he would only let me go once I'd given him my phone number and he'd phoned the phone to make sure it rang and he'd seen it come up on my screen. And he drove me all the way back to my apartment with confidence and let me out because in his sick mind, I was genuinely going to see him again. That's what the last one was. I got out of the car and I walked past the security guard that was there at the time and I mouthed, help me. And I was so grateful for that man because he was incredibly sharp on the ball. And the man that was, you know, that had held me captive was his supervisor and he acted like nothing was wrong, went and had this conversation. My rapist stood in the doorway of my complex for 30 minutes still going through his security check. I I got inside my house, I locked the door, and I phoned my neighbor. And he came in through the back door and sat there with me until this man left. And then the body corporate got involved, which was a huge mistake. And then the police, eventually we went through to the police station and got that done. But it was, it was I literally had to become as manipulative as him during that experience to get out of that. And he told me that when he was done, we would take a nice drive to Soweto. And... I kind of sat there going, you have no other option here. If you want to survive, you have no other option other than getting your shit together, 
and making a plan. And what about other relationships with men? How has this experience affected your relationship with men? I definitely um, have a tendency to get into emotionally abusive relationships. There, there's a song called I Need a Gangster or Gangster by Kelani. It's on the Suicide Squad soundtrack. The tendency for a lot of us as survivors is to find a bigger gangster than your last aggressor so that you feel safe. And it's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. We bleed our vulnerability and we wear our hearts and our sleeves in a big way. Um, and we're always looking for somebody who's going to come in and keep us safe. And that's been my pattern for the longest time. I'm in a phase of my life right now where I'm really excited that I've been able to break through that cycle. And it's largely through therapy and conversations with Mara and the counseling that I've gotten through there, where you realize what your patterns are. And the faster you can do that afterwards, because you will have patterns. Everybody has a pattern, and that's a part of that coping, coping mechanism. And it's very real. We just don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about the depression or the stuff that comes from there. So once I realized that my pattern was that, I kind of just pulled back from dating altogether for a while. Um, until I could accept the fact that they were nice men and I was worthy of their attention as well because we do tend to run away from the nice guys quite often afterwards we don't believe them we genuinely don't believe that there are any nice guys left so you date the asshole and I'm in a phase of my life where I'm now attracting and meeting and settling down with or dating nicer people and I'm allowing them to treat me properly because that's what I deserve but it took a lot of um, personal development. It took a lot of self-love. It took a lot of introspection to get to the point where I didn't feel devalued because I'd been violated um, or because I'd had sex with men outside of that in a way that led to the compensation and the development of my sexual identity. I I feel special now and so I'm starting to meet special people. Hmm. You know, we all get told that rape is not about the sex. Mm. It's about power. And it's about the aggressor having power over you or taking your power away. It's about power. And I genuinely believe that in almost every situation where I am involved and where other people are involved, the only thing I have, in contro I have control over is myself and my emotions mm. and my actions. So how I react, how I act, how I, how I take a situation in, the only thing I can control is me. Mm. I cannot control the next person. I cannot control what they think, see, feel, hear, any of those things, no matter what my intentions are. Mm. And because of that, I often wonder what power we can give ourselves as women in any situation to, I mean, I think in, in the situation with your last aggressor, you took back your power and were able to, and, 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 and had your wits about you in order. So your actions, you could never have believed what he would do or what he, how he would react, mm -hmm. but your power and your reaction is what saved you. Mm. In all the experiences that you've had and with all the women that you've ever spoken with, I wonder if there is anything that can be the power that we can have as women in moments like that, that we must remember when you, when you're 
genuinely faced with an aggressor, when you find yourself in a situation where you are uncomfortable, how do you keep your power in your head? I think why is there such a thing? Yeah. Is there even such a thing? Yes, but you okay. know, the thing is, as as from when you're really really young, as a little girl, the moment you you demonstrate strength, you're a bossy bitch. Right? Yeah, no, I'm a totally bossy bitch. Like right? everybody I know. This is a, everybody I know. We're bossy bitches. And my, my big thing Everybody is like, I know <laughs> thinks I'm a bossy bitch. So that's, that's okay. That's okay. And that's the big thing. For me, you have to get to your bossy bitch self. Man. You, not not even and it does it's she's not necessarily always aggressive, but she knows why she's here. And that's the one thing that nobody can take away from you. So the the faster you access your state of flow, your sense of purpose, the who am I, nobody can take that away from you. And that's the source of all of your strength. It doesn't matter what anybody does to you physically if you can still access that particular place. It doesn't matter what anybody does to you emotionally if you can still access that particular place. Um, and And so it's almost a case of panic slowly. Wow. So that's... That's amazing. Panic slowly. Panic slowly. It's natural to feel the fear and the anxiety. It's. I was I was speaking to a girl the other day who's also a survivor, and she came. She she lived on my couch for two months because there's just nowhere else to go. And which is another thing we do in black families. We're really good at kicking girls out once they've been raped. Um, but I was saying to her. You are going to be emotional. You are going to cry. You are going to feel angry. You are going to have palpitations. You are going to have panic attacks. Breathe. Breathe until shit makes sense. Until you breathe past the feelings and the emotions. And the next thing you do is based on logic. Yeah. Amen to that. I want to tell you that a truism just said into everybody's ears today. Panic slowly. Mm. It's ridiculous to say don't panic. When you're, we just slow it down. Just you just, just you can down. panic. And just you, slow it down. Listen, this is going to sound like a joke, and it kind of is. But you go into the matrix. You really do, and all the numbers come into my like everything flows. Just and if you think about it on a physical level, getting more oxygen to your brain allows you to think better. So you do it in every situation in the same way you would if you were doing a presentation in a boardroom. You panic slowly. And some ladies literally have to fake it through the rest of their rape experience if it guarantees their survival. If they get to finish. If they get to finish. And sometimes that's what you have to do to get out. Sometimes fighting back will result to your death. So in every situation, if you just calmed yourself down in that situation... You'll be able to work through what you have to do to get through that situation and you'll find yourself on the other side of it. But survival first. In the same way that when we advise people on what to do in our hijacking, you don't lock your doors and go, yeah, this is my car. I'm not going anywhere and drive. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's just a car. And yes, yes, rape is a terrifying physical experience. But the one thing I've now learned is that it's just happening to your body. It's not happening to your soul. It's not happening to your identity unless you let it, unless you choose to not fight back emotionally, unless, unless you choose to let yourself die. 
whether that's physically or emotionally? I don't think there's actually a better place to end this conversation because I think that is the most powerful thing I've ever heard. Ever. Panic slowly. And I think it probably probably holds true for a lot of situations in life. <laughs> it does. So that just has exploded my mind. I think before I let you go, before I say goodbye, before, before, yeah, my mind is completely blown. I think it's important that number again, that's so important to have on your phone, star one, three, four, star seven, three, five, five hash. It'll send you, it, it's brought to you by Tears Foundation. It will send you, um, location based three places you can go to for help. Mm. Three places you can go to for help wherever you are in the country. That number will send you help. Thank you, Mara, for staying. Mara wasn't even coming to talk to me and I just hijacked her and she stayed. So- <laughs> awesome. Absolutely awesome. So thank you, Mara, for staying. Thank you, Mara, for being amazing. Thank you for starting. Tears.co.za. That's also where you can go to find out more. I love this bringing hope and healing. Bringing hope and healing. Lulu, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story because I do think all your stories are powerful and I think it's important just to have those conversations because just between us girls, it's lonely out there. It is. It's hard out there and we often feel like, oh dear, you're all by yourself and nobody else in the whole entire world has ever had this. And thank you for coming through and keeping it real with me here on Cliff Central. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you for letting me cry into your mic. <laughs> it's what we do around here. It's what we do around here. This is, this is what makes a womanla right. girl. So we're all about womanla. Um, yeah, this is us. Keeping it real. On cliffcentral.com. This is a double blessing for me today. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, I'm Pumi and you have been tuned into Wumanda. Cliffcentral.com.